Good morning. I'm joined with uh, today with Josh Lampert, Electrophysiology Fellow at Mount Sinai, with a research focus in machine learning, model explainability, and novel technologies. Thank you so much for joining us today, Josh. Of course, thanks for having me. Um, before we dive in, uh, what is something people cannot find on your bio? I see. Hmm. I would, I would probably say my dedication to my family and my cat, Marshmallow. <laughs> oh, that's it. How did you come up with that name? Uh, so he's a Neva masquerade. He's very white with these toasted brownish aspects to his ears. It looks like a little burnt marshmallow. <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Th does he or she also eat marshmallows? Uh, we, we try to avoid him eating marshmallows, hopefully. <laughs> if he does, he's very good at keeping it a secret. Okay, that's, that's nice. That's wonderful. Okay, so let's jump straight into it. Um, let's talk about remote patient monitoring in its wide variety, so not only implantables, but patches, uh, smart watches, and uh, single-lead ECGs, and variety of that. And the first question is, do you believe in remote patient monitoring? Absolutely. I think, re I think remote patient monitoring is the future of how we identify disease. I think currently it's biased to patients that have already presented for illness as opposed to the future where we will be able to detect patients who are at risk of disease that could benefit from medical care. Hmm. That's, that's, uh, that's good. Maybe going to one of the points that you said brings me like what are the pitfalls of remote patient monitoring? Absolutely. So the first, of course, is the data acquisition. Data is only useful if it is high-quality data. So if you are getting a lot of artifact in the strip, if you are having patients not always wearing the device, so obviously if it's an implantable device, the patient doesn't have a choice. But if it's a, a patch monitor, something that can be easily removed, the patient's not wearing it for a sufficient amount of time, um, you, potentially even different times of the day, uh, you may be biasing your report and missing critical events. Mm. Those sound like hard problems, right? The signal quality, patient adherence, um, what what are your thoughts to uh, how to how to handle those pitfalls? Um, that's a great question. I think there are a few options, and they fall into a diff couple different categories. One is the the actual data acquisition, the device used to acquire the raw data. Then there's the processing of that data. What type of algorithms are used to uh, and filtering are used to clean up the waveforms. And then there's the post-processing, the interpretation of that data, which in many cases currently machine learning is being used for rhythm discrimination. Um, but it's still kind of in its infancy. And I think in the future, you'll be able to get a lot more with machine learning. But again, there are pitfalls to that as well, um, it, it, particularly in model bias you know, and mm. things like that. So maybe the, the way signal quality could be overcome is by having machine learning helping uh, clean up part of that signal so it's usable again. Uh, and then how, how would you address patient adherence? Uh, I think that's one of the biggest challenges, you know, uh, when it comes to wearable devices and smartwatches and... Right. So, as with everything, with everything we do as doctors, it all comes down to patient communication. What levels of, of um, what levels within the system that communication occurs and how that communication is delivered to the patient so that they understand why certain things are important, wearing their device, you know, replacing if the patch falls off, how to put it back on, putting it back in the same place, because there are certainly patients who may put the patch on in a different location and then the vectors may appear different and you may pick up, you know, more noise. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I think as far as getting patients to be uh, compliant, or rather to cooperate with their with the uh, healthcare process and being invested in their care, yeah. it's really our responsibility. And what do you say to the physicians? Say I don't have time for that to go and explain to every single patient how they have to download the app, install this, uh, at, connect with your Bluetooth, and you know be their tech support. Right. So honestly, this is something that can be done relatively easy in the clinic if the workflow is set up to support that, mm. where you can help everything be set up for the patient, and then there is minimal that they need to do, and then you have much less to explain if you create a seamless transition so that their care can move forward. Oh, yeah. That's, that's a good one. So maybe let's go and talk about um, is how do you see, what, how do you successfully implement you know, digital health, remote patient monitoring solutions into a clinic. This is the part where we, we, we hear a lot of people struggling. Like we see, everybody sees the potential, but how do you actually do it? And, and this is maybe if you can share a few, uh, few of your thoughts uh, on how to, how to do that successfully. Right, I think the easiest way perhaps is to have a self-contained kit, so to speak of the monitor, the device, or the remote device that the patient will need to use to communicate results, um, whatever charging kit is needed, if the device is rechargeable or if it's something that you just send back. All self-contained that way when you bring it to the patient, it's set and ready to go. You can even put the device on the patient. You know, For example, with men, if you need to prep the chest and shave, that may not be obvious to some people, and if they go home alone, that can contribute to artifact on the strip. So there's a lot of opportunity to have a self-contained apparatus where you just hand it to the patient, mm -hmm. and there is much less to explain. Would you add like a, a shaving, shaving cream and a, and a razor to it, for example? Some, some, some places do include a, a, a dry razor uh, included in, in a kit. Okay. It's, it's, it's possible to do and has been done. Okay. I'm uh, just curious of the level of detail, like how much do you... Yeah, I think, I think the, the more barriers that you can remove from the patient's healthcare, the better. Obviously, mm -hmm. that comes at a cost and time to the clinic and the staff needed to help do that. But if you want the best quality care, the highest quality data, um, the, the more barriers that we can overcome and help our patients to do that, the, the better off we'll be in yes. the long term. And, and how do we also protect the physician's time because the more you know we create a unique and dedicated experience of removing all the barriers sometimes it adds new barriers and work for your team right so i mean i would propose that it's not necessarily the physician doing this aspect of the care um, we are especially in the united states we have a really profound uh, health care system with multiple different aspects of pay of uh, care providers who are able to work with us in delivering care to patients. And so it is perhaps best, uh, the best use of resources to, have, to ask for their assistance in getting these things set up, um, which in the broad picture of the healthcare system will save the, the physician time and um, reduce the amount of post-visit communication that needs to occur, which most people don't initially consider if things aren't done correctly mm. upfront. How does an ideal team look like of people, you know, if you had were to or set up a team to deal with these new technologies, how would it look like in order to indeed make sure that the physician doesn't get all the, all the workload? Right, absolutely. You know, at, at Mount Sinai, we have a great system. We have our 
physician teams, and then we have our colleagues, nurse practitioners, PAs, medical assistants, um, nurses that are all work together um, in concert to deliver a comprehensive plan for every given patient. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's good. And could we, like, let's say, um, uh, can we take one example and work us through what each of the the, the team members would be working on? Sure. So, you know, for example, a patient comes to our clinic, the medical assistant is getting their vital signs ready, um, getting, their, um, getting their EKG done, they get into the, they're in the room, we come in to see them. Meanwhile, if we need a monitor, the nurse practitioner or the PA is getting that coordinated and set up. The medical assistant puts that on the patient. If the patient needs lab, either the medical assistant or the nurse in the clinic who's you know licensed to do the phlebotomy will get the labs drawn. And so this all happens at the same time, so you don't necessarily have to wait and prolong the process. Because remember, patients have lives to get back to as well. Yes. And so the less time that we, can ha that we have them staying in the clinic, waiting for the next step in their healthcare, the, the happier they'll be. No, it makes sense. Okay, good. So maybe one of the things we hear often as well is we're in the new ways of working, you get so much more data that the teams that are you know used to working in a nice flow will be overloaded. Uh, how do you think we can deal with the overload of data that the, the new ways of working and the devices that are producing you know billions of data points uh, uh, over, over weeks, sometimes months? Uh, um, yeah, that creates a lot of stress. Yeah, that is a really fantastic and insightful question. So, you know, we, we love to create problems for ourselves in healthcare, and sometimes the solutions that we develop create more problems. And so one of the issues, of course, that we have is that we create so many more data points. And so the solution to these problems is ultimately going to be machine learning. And it, it'll help in certain ways. It'll help in the processing, in in developing the actual reports, um, in not only uh, um, filtering and adjusting the actual waveforms in a meaningful way, but the analysis of the waveforms. So that way you can have an algorithm make a diagnosis for you first, uh, and then it can go on to a clinician review. Um, of course, this has some implications for the healthcare system. There are likewise pitfalls, mm. uh, bioethical considerations, medical legal implications, which... And so maybe to that, right? Because there's a huge promise, obviously, in AI, uh, uh, but who's responsible? Because we say like an algorithm has to be 99% accurate or, or, you know, in that range, but a human is allowed to be, uh, you know, in a, in a lower degree. So how can we navigate this question that we hear come up quite often of who's responsible. Right. You know, I think as a society, we are more forgiving of human error and not forgiving at all for any machine error. And so the reality is, is that when we are monitoring patients, we are making decisions, you know, based on that information. We're taking them for a pacemaker because they have AV block on a monitor or they have VT, or there's AFib, and we're de debating you know, whether they go for an ablation. You know, but anytime you consider an invasive procedure for somebody, you are now introducing risk. And as you know, physicians, we have taken an oath and to observe the bioethical considerations, non-maleficence. You know, at first, we do no harm. So ultimately, as things stand, the physician is always going to be ultimately responsible for the decision-making. But there will come a time when machine learning will outperform humans to the extent 
where there will be a shared responsibility between the producer of the algorithm and the clinician acting on it. And ultimately, there are multiple levels in any sense of patient care where there's responsibility. And any time that something happens, um, there's that Swiss cheese model in healthcare, kind of based off of the airline industry, where there are very few problems because multiple things have to go wrong before something someone is harmed. Mm -hmm. And I think the same is going to be built in to a machine learning augmented healthcare system. So is it what you're saying is that AI will take the less risky decisions? Uh, if I, I don't know if I understood correctly, but will AI do the, uh, like the invasive things, it will always be potentially a physician, but the low risk decisions uh, or how do you see that? Maybe if you could comment on that. So I think there are two aspects to your really excellent point. The, th the items that machine learning will help identify for us, one is diagnostic and one is for critical illness identification. So diagnosing AFib is very different than somebody in complete heart block who had no ventricular escape for 12 seconds. Uh, those are those are two the, the the aspect of those two entities is very different, and so ultimately in the AFib example, a clinician is going to decide, I'm going to take this patient for an ablation. They have a burden of 30 percent. Uh, they're paroxysmal. Now is the time to make sure that they stay in sinus rhythm, which we know ablation is the most effective way of keeping patients in sinus rhythm. But for but for who bears the responsibility for the notification of the heart block? If we depend entirely on machine learning to do that for us, there will ultimately come a time, and it may be a very rare case, because again, machine learning will be better than us at doing all of this. It, to be honest, it already is, yeah. but it will be accepted in a way where we will then be more dependent on that information. And so that's where things get a little bit more complex. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think needs to happen for um, you know, society to accept machine learning. Uh, so I think the way that we get both society and physicians making decisions to accept machine learning is explainability. And when an, a machine learning model makes a prediction, it is incorporating features that are offered to the model during the training process that allow the model to make a prediction. Now, in order for us as doctors and everyone in the healthcare system to understand why a model makes that prediction, there is an explainability framework. This can be accomplished with various options, saliency mapping. Um, the, the one example for ex is GradCam, which uh, creates class activation mapping, which is basically a heat map of a picture, and it shows you, with red being the most important, what the most important feature of that image is for the model making its prediction. So if you take an EKG, for example, the heat map may look like a red spot over the QRS complex, signifying that the QRS complex is the most important thing. But now, what aspect of the, of the QRS complex is most important? And that's the next step that we need to take with modeled explainability so that we can really get to the underlying mechanisms of disease, define that with the help of machine learning, but also so that clinicians know what is important, uh, why, why a model is looking at something and why it's important. Yeah. And then how, as in some cases, we don't even know why a certain algorithm, you know, like deep learning, why, why it, it is the way it is. Exactly. 
And so actually one, uh, one great example is the, the Mayo Group published an, an excellent paper uh, on predicting atrial fibrillation, uh, pre sorry, predicting uh, aortic stenosis, moderate or severe aortic stenosis from, sinus, uh, from a sinus ECG. And their explainability model highlighted right precordial U waves. And so this we found very interesting because we tend to ignore U waves on ECGs. It's something that we teach to medical students and, you know, we look for metabolic disarray, but ultimately we don't really pay that much attention to it. So what we did, we actually published a paper in Jack where we actually manually went through patients who were undergoing TAVR that had clear severe aortic stenosis. And we actually not only were able to identify um, right precordial U waves in the majority of them ourselves as clinicians looking at an ECG, but we also compared to what happened immediately after, under, under, after they underwent the TAVR. And the vast majority of them completely had resolution of the right precordial U waves. Mm. So we're actually now seeing that explainability frameworks are not only teachable to clinicians, but also that there's a dynamic process that can occur that we could also then focus on yes. and, t and see if we can tie that to outcomes. So in a way, it's discovering, let's call them, elements of the algorithm that are highlighted that like a, uh, like a U-wave that wasn't known before and then almost retroactively trying to figure out um, what it, why. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, really interesting. So maybe you had to, uh, to finalize in the last two questions is one is, you know, what does success look like in terms of remote patient monitoring for the physician? Uh, so I think success is safe patient care while reducing the time burden on clinicians to deliver that care. Because right now we are, we are able to manually review and deliver the high quality care that we want to, but it takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And machine learning is going to be the solution for us to be able to identify patients at risk, ensure if they have an implantable device, that the device is functioning well, and that there are no clinical changes that we could also potentially predict and get ahead yeah. of. And if you can act early on certain things, then you may be able to obviate a subsequent presentation of an acute critical illness. Yeah. And, and maybe to that, like, what do you think the future of re remote monitoring will look like in five years? I think at some point we will have a, a there will be a central process where we will be able to feed in all that information and the model will be able to continually teach itself and be able to incorporate differences in uh, strips obtained from different companies, different devices, and be able to get that to clinicians in a timely way, um, even to potentially scan certain monitors to notify um, clinicians of acute illnesses maybe before they happen so mm -hmm. that you can increase your screening while being cognizant of the battery life that would otherwise be necessary for devices to push a notification to a clinic. So yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Absolutely. You know, prediction and uh, prediction of disease. And so, of course, regulatory will have to catch up, but there's yes. a lot of... There will be problem. a lot of regulation, yeah. but for good reason. Absolutely. No, that's, that's been uh, really wonderful, uh, Josh. Thanks a lot for your uh, time. And uh, uh, thanks a lot. All right. Thanks so much for having yeah. me and very excited for the future. This is really an amazing time in the field. Perfect. Good.